I'm totally on. Oh, and it's 6:30. <laughs> we can start this. Hi guys. Down and green, green light. <laughs> you are my favorite crowd. Don't tell the others, but you woo on command, and you're my favorite. So, welcome to 20 Years Later: The Phantom Menace, where we will obviously be talking about uh, Star Trek: Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Nah, I'm kidding. Uh, welcome to everyone. My name is Bria Lavornia. I am a writer for StarWars.com and an occasional contributor to certain Star Wars Marvel comics in the Age of Republic and Age of Rebellion. Uh, I also write for a Star Wars website called Tashi Station. I do a lot of other things because I've got a list a mile long and you don't want to hear it. So instead, I'm going to let my panelists introduce themselves, starting with the lady to my left. Hello, uh, my name is E.K. Johnston, and I wrote Star Wars Queen's Shadow and Star Wars Ahsoka. And I like the Star Wars a lot. Unlike these two very accomplished ladies, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I'm up here because I love Star Wars. I'm part of the 501st Legion. I do Captain Rex, and I grew up during the age of the prequels. So that's why I'm up here. And your name is? Oh, my name's Emily. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Liang. I'm the resident old fart of this panel. Um, I, I saw Star Wars I, A New Hope at the age of eight when it first came out in theaters and uh, scared the unholy crap out of me and didn't fall in love with, the th with that movie until two years later when I, when I read the novelization. So I saw, a new, I saw Phantom Menace at the age of 29 at the Uptown Theater right down the street from here. It was, you know, pre, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, the big IMAX and everything else. So there was the biggest theater in town to see it. He's the adult supervision on this panel, apparently. <laughs> okay, so as some of you may be aware, there was a very large convention that happened about two weeks ago now in Chicago called Celebration. And there they actually also, I'm going to say they took a note from me, even though this totally was not what they did. But they had a panel to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Phantom Menace, and on the panel they highlighted some of the people who were behind the scenes and were working for ILM, and they also brought out, let's see, Ray Park, Ian McDermott, Anthony Daniels, and most importantly, Ahmed Best, uh, who thankfully got a standing ovation from the crowd, which was very satisfying to see. So were you guys able to catch any of the panel at all? Did you have any thoughts on it? Um, I was in the Delray booth because they have like the cushy carpet that doesn't hurt to stand on concrete. <laughs> um, and uh, it was the only panel, I think it was the only panel I watched uh, that weekend because I was doing so many things. And um, I think at one point I tweeted, I'm like, if you're looking for me, I'm in the Delray panel. I'm in the Delray booth like having several face journeys because I just like cried for an hour. <laughs> but in the good way, like it was very cathartic almost to kind of see all the stuff that I loved on screen. And when they showed, they, they showed the trailer at the beginning, which I had actually never seen, because um, I grew up in a town that had 2,000 people, and you had to drive for an hour to get to the movie theater. So like we didn't have, pre or we didn't have previews, really, because it was before the internet was a big thing. And so um, it was the first time I'd seen the Phantom Menace preview was at the 20-year anniversary panel. And I was like, man, everyone who says good thing about this trailer is correct. <laughs> I was very fortunate to be at that panel, and uh, it was a very emotional panel because the second the lights go down and the trailer starts running, you turn into that kid from the 1990s. You're like, oh my god, it's happening again, all over again. It was uh, a very interesting panel to be a part of because you knew everybody in there was there because of the love of the Phantom Menace. It was something really exciting to be a part of. 
I was not there. <laughs> I mean, I was at the celebration, but I, I was at the uh, book publishing panel. It was right around the same time. And, but I do remember in 99, um, downloading the trailer on my Bondi Blue iMac via the phone line on this little, you know, if you wanted it just to be able to download it within, within an hour, it had to be this little itty bitty picture. So I was like, had my head right up against the screen to try to see what the heck was going on. It was great. That was actually going to be my next question, was about that trailer, because it starts with that line that says, that might be familiar to some of you who saw another trailer recently, <laughs> every generation has a legend. So what, so now that all of us have seen the trailer at some point in our lives, like, what does that trailer invoke for you? Besides every generation has a legend. I think one of the things that Star Wars is really good at is instantly creating something iconic, even if it's not the thing they meant to be iconic. And um, with the trailer, it is 100% Darth Maul. Yeah. Um, and I just love the idea that it's the kind of fandom where, you know, 20 years later, Ray Park and Sam Witwer have 400 people in their lineup for pictures who are all, like, super-duper excited um, for a character who, like, theoretically was a one-off. Ended up not being, obviously. But, like... Um, just that sort of like instant it was so instantly iconic and considering at the time we thought star wars was never coming back it was especially fantastic that was the thing i was really excited for was growing up with star wars but really only having the original trilogy in the books um, and being in my teens this was my star wars and i was so excited because it was finally something made for my generation and then like you said you remember that scene where in the trailer it's just darth maul and you're like oh it's gonna get good and as a little kid you're like yes so like all those star wars emotions that you had when you first saw the original trilogy that i instantly had those when i saw the trailer for the phantom menace the first time as a kid yeah, for me it was I. I was already 29, so I was I wasn't a kid anymore. So I had my own my own sort of idea of what it might become, what it might turn out to be. So and it was also Star Wars was back. I hadn't seen a Star Wars movie since I was a kid, and I'd read the novels, the novelizations all the time. That I, that's what I really ate up more more so than anything else. And not only that, I had also learned that uh, Terry Brooks, who was a writer of the the Shannara or Shannara, however you want to pronounce it, uh, series of books, he was going to be writing the novelization, which really got me interest, seriously interested. So all that combined was like, oh my god, just give that to me now. What about first impressions? Because I honestly, I think I'm the youngest person on this panel. I was nine years old when The Phantom Menace came out. I'm sorry to those of you I just made feel very old. Um, but I don't actually remember what my, my first impression was, except that I know it was Star Wars, it was new, and going by how I felt about the rest of the prequels, it was absolutely my favorite Star Wars movie for at least a couple of years. Um, it was my 15th birthday um, on opening day, and uh, my friend Lydia's dad drove us to the movie theater, which, as I said, was a time commitment on his part. It was like two hours return. And the two of us went to see this movie, and it was exciting because like, we were alone in the big city <laughs> um, watching this movie. And I just remember the the Lucasfilm thing comes up in the quiet and then the music starts and the scroll started coming across and it was like 
episode one. And I remember when I was a kid, I was obsessed with both Star Wars and the British royal family, which just meant that I like had a stronger than usual knowledge of Roman numerals for the average four-year-old. And so I remember asking my brother, like, why is it episode four? And he was like, well, George Lucas had this great idea, but we're probably never going to see the rest of the episodes. And I remember just sitting there in that moment and being like, oh my god, this is episode one! And just, it was so, so exciting. What were your first impressions of Phantom Menace? (laughs) If you remember them, because I don't remember mine. It was just a lot of giddiness and like it was that feeling of it's finally happening that like I've wanted to be a Jedi I wanted to play Star Wars for so long that finally here it is on the big screen fresh and new and this is our chance my generation's chance to make this our own and that was my first impression of just oh I can do this this is gonna be fun yeah, for me, it was, um, like I said, we were at the Uptown Theater with some friends. There was a line all the way around the block to get in just to see the, dog, the doggone movie. We get in there, you know, this crawl starts, everybody just cheers when you, with the, the fanfare of the Fox. They cheered at the Fox fanfare. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole thing, then everybody settled down and started watching it and watching it, and then Maul comes out going, with his double-bladed lightsaber, and the whole theater went nuts. And then you see, you know, Jedi at their absolute you know, peak, fighting, jumping, you've never seen that, you, you, it wasn't like an Obi-Wan or fighting Darth Vader or Luke fighting Darth Vader where they're just, you know, thrust, parry, no, this was just full-on combat, I mean, it was with the music behind it, with, you know, with John Williams doing that duel of the fates, which I didn't know at the time, now I, now, now I know, it was just mind-blowing. It's funny you mentioned the Fox music, because when I was a kid, I always remember being, like, deeply disappointed when I heard the Fox intro and then it wasn't a Star Wars movie like yeah. <laughs> yep. we were yep. so well like, trained I was yeah. so well trained by that music you ain't that, that, like, that, that, yeah, that right. music yeah. you're like yeah Star Wars what you is this Star Wars mm-hmm. the table. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a Star Wars it's not. okay so have some of you guys been coming to Awesome Con for a couple years now yeah so there was a panel a couple years back that was also about the Phantom Menace and there was a question that was asked there that some of the it was just was very interesting to me. So I'm going to repeat that question here, and I'm going to ask all of us to share our answer on the count of three. So it'll be one, two, three, okay. and then you answer. Okay. Okay. Who is the main character of the Phantom Menace? One, two, three. Obi Wan Kenobi. A jumble. What did we actually all say? We agreed. We must say Padme. <laughs> Who did you say? Anakin, sorry. Anakin. I said Obi-Wan. Okay. <laughs> because, okay, so I want to tell you who I was focusing on during the movie. I want to make it up. All dark and handsome Clyde going over in the corner. We can get there later. <laughs> We're going to need a second. That was amazing. Okay, so the reason I asked this is because during this panel, it took us about 10 minutes to get to, oh, maybe Padme is the main character. We went through Jar Jar and Palpatine before we got to Padme. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start down at the, at the end, because I know it, what E.K. and I are going to say. John, why do you say it's Anakin? Uh, just because from the trailer and from the, the poster of Anakin with the shadow of Darth Vader in the background, um, it's, it's the start of his journey. So, and, and he's a little kid, too, so yeah. I'm gonna have to change my answer to agree with him. There's no changing of answer. It's no, too you late. You made your reason. choice. You have to stick to Obi Wan. Because <laughs> I'm curious. They gave him a mullet in the second <laughs> one. That alone makes you a main character. <laughs> Sorry, hold on. 
There's that. <laughs> That's a scientific Obi-Wan reason, too. Obi-Wan is always the main character. Because Obi-Wan was, like... He was he's not the main character. He yes, he was he's what grounded you to Anakin. You have this kid that you just met, that's great, but you have Anakin next to him and Anakin or Obi-Wan is what gives gave Anakin as a kid the validity of a character. I mean, there's a lot more to it. But having Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan there like he's also the connection to the original trilogy as well. So yeah, you so had that. that that's yeah, what yeah, I mean, yeah, validity yeah, like you yeah. know this character, you know where he's going and what he's going to do, so he has this kid with him, so mm-hmm. now you know. Yeah. See, I would have gotten I if you had told me that explanation without the name, for the most part, except the original yeah. trilogy, I thought we, I would have thought you were talking about Qui Gon. See, Qui Gon. Mm. Well, now <laughs> that, that's, that's, totally a, thing, yeah. that's a rabbit hole. We don't have time to go down <laughs> with Qui Gon. Okay. Read Master and Apprentice. Sorry. Yes, yeah, please, please read Master and Apprentice. You're going to hear this about five times during this panel. Minimum. You owe it to yourself to number one, read every single Claudia Gray book you can get your hands on, especially if it's a Star Wars book, and number two. Please read Master and Apprentice. There's so many good. Is the line on the back of that one? Is it um, there? Uh, yeah, it is. is. Yeah. I'm making one of them do a dramatic reading, and then EK's going to tell us why she thinks Padme is. I'm going to tell them why they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it matters, Qui Gon said quietly. It matters which side we choose. The last line is the best part. Even if there will never be more light than darkness, even if there can be no more joy in the galaxy than there is pain, for every action we undertake, for every word we speak, for every life we touch, it matters. I don't turn toward the light because it means someday I'll win some sort of cosmic game. I turn toward it because it is the light. That is one of several reasons I adore Claudia Gray. Yes, why you should read that book. Okay, okay. So the reason Padme is the main character of um, Star Wars: The Phantom Menace is that she is she's the, she's the protagonist of The Phantom Menace in the way that Anakin is the main character of the trilogy, but it's her planet and it's her journey, and he's basically this kid they sort of pick up on a side quest. Um, who turns out to be like important later? Waste of trees. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, oh Phantom Menace is the DLC. Yeah. <laughs> it's a DLC prequel. Yeah. It's a DLC. And so you, um, so you, with with Padme, you have as a protagonist, you have her. She's in almost every scene, um, and she has sort of the um, the background and the character development that you expect from a protagonist because it's her plot that's driving the story. If Anakin's plot was driving the story, they'd spend much more time worrying about emancipation on Tatooine, which is kind of the plot of Attack of the Clones in a lot of ways. So um, for, for The Phantom Menace, you just have sort of this like brief shining moment with a female protagonist. Um, and it's definitely an ensemble piece. So, like, I, I, you wouldn't even really say like there's like a, a main character in the traditional sense, but in terms of the actual plot progression, um, Palpatine is set up as the villain to Padme. The Trade Federation is set up as the villains to Padme, um, and like her whole arc is, I have to save my planet, and I have to talk all these people into doing it, and then I'm going to punch them until they do it because talking's not working. And um, I changed my answer. Thanks. Um, <laughs> That's the second time you've changed your answer. <laughs> and my, my favorite part of The Phantom Menace is that when they're planning the battle at the very, very end, she says, we have to make it to the throne room. And she literally gets the Viceroy to walk her in to the throne room. 
<laughs> like, they get captured, and she's not worried because she knows they're going to take them to the throne room because she knows where the guns are. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that's, like, basically, in a nutshell, the short version of why I think Padme is the protagonist. I like it. Get yourself a queen who keeps <laughs> blasters in the arm for a Who knows room. where she keeps the blasters. <laughs> yes. And also, I'm really going to be thinking about how Phantom Menace is Dragon Age Awakenings for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, Just ask the next question. Star Wars yeah. deals. Yeah. yeah. Like so, okay, well, I want to talk about Padme and the Handmaidens because, obviously, they mean, they mean a fair bit to several of us on the panel, possibly even more to someone on the panel who wrote three, 300, how many long is Queen Shadow? Th- 300 a lot page book about them. Read Queen Shadow. Yes. It's great. Um, so why, why do you think, and there's, there's a whole generation of young women who I think now are in our, maybe the later teens, 20s, 30s, for whom Padme and the Handmaidens mean a lot. Why do you think they've managed to resonate so well with our generation and with other women in general? Okay, she's going to think I'm going to talk for a bit. Um, so for me, as I said, it was my 15th birthday, and not only did Star Wars give me a female protagonist, they also gave me a female protagonist with a bunch of friends who could shoot people, run complex espionage things, fly ships, like wear excellent clothing, and like totally be ignored by people when they wished to be, and I thought that was super cool. Um, and then we, we didn't really hear anything about them for the next two decades. Um, and I think... Part of the reason was that part of the reason they were so popular was because the, the, their fans created corners on the internet for themselves where they could talk amongst themselves aside from the main forums, um, and it became very community-based. So, like from a from a fan point of view, they were a very highly concentrated fandom because it was really easy to find them in a room. They were the ones hiding in the corner, and um, they would they would come out and talk about like other Star Wars stuff. But they always had like the, the Royal Handmaiden Society was the name of the website, and um, it was basically um, this sort of place where it was safe to gather and talk about these characters who were kind of ignored for the most part. Um, none of them have their names spoken on screen, even though they all have them. Um, and most of them don't have lines. So um, it was kind of a, they were like these mysterious girls in the back. And for girls who grew up with the original trilogy and then got to watch them into Menace, they were like, yes, finally. And then like, still waiting. So I'm really glad that we're kind of on the upswing of that right now. And I'm going to actually answer this because I want to talk about it a little bit too. Um, like I mentioned before in the intros, I have been contributing to some of Marvel uh, Marvel's Age of Republic series, which means basically writing some of the essays in the back. And when they offered me the chance to write Padme, I basically jumped through the computer screen and said yes, because I had a lot of feelings and I was going to express them. Uh, because Padme does mean a lot. If you're on Twitter, there's a bunch of a bunch of us who go who who grew up with Padme, who was different. She was different from Leia. She Whereas as Leia was always a very strong, strong character who would take control of a situation, Padme does the same, but she does it while being a little bit more traditionally feminine. Um, she has the pretty clothes, and those pretty clothes often have a purpose. Uh, Queen Shadow goes into it a lot. It's weaponized fashion. And to me, that having that different sort of female hero in Padme meant a lot, because Clearly, I like pretty dresses, so seeing a hero who both embraced them and could kick butt and also negotiate 
always meant a lot to me. It's almost like girls can do more than one thing what? at the same time. We're, we're, we're multifaceted? <laughs> so I'm going to switch this up a little bit. <laughs> when the movie first came out, um, I, th- I loved the Queen's outfits, but I was very much a tomboy. I didn't care about the Queen. I liked Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Darth Maul, and you know, I was playing with lightsabers, not with dresses. Um, but near the end, when Padme gets into her the Battle Maiden outfit, I saw those sleeves and went, girl, I need that. I need that outfit. <laughs> and in, in the midst of working on one now. But it wasn't until later that when I start to f- try and figure out, well, what do what does being a woman mean to me, that I start you know, watching Star Wars, I got an appreciation for the queen, and not just her, but her backup squad. Um, and you really understand what she had to go through to protect her people. And how, like, as a young kid, it's like, oh, it's a queen, but she's not strong. She's not, like, forceful and out there. She's in this gorgeous outfit. And it wasn't until later that you realized that's where her strength was, was being that queen, being that very professional, regal character, but then being able to be a human outside of that. That that was a duality of her that I learned later. And then through uh, E.K.'s book, that I really got an appreciation for the different handmaidens and like I found the characteristics of the one that I most align myself with and through that I have gotten a deeper appreciation for the handmaidens so thank you yeah for me was, um, there's a, the, the scene in the hangar when Padme yells get when they're shooting it out and she says she yells get to your ships in the novelization the way uh, Terry Brooks writes about it he's, he's writing about it through Anakin's eyes and Anakin sees this young woman warrior basically just Going after, going at it, and so I'm reading this and going, wow. And then Kate's book comes out a couple months ago, and I'm reading the, this incredible, all these other, de- other details that I n- never, honestly, as a straight cis male, never really thought about. Made me think, dang, not only these are these women strong, they're kind of hot because they're smart, they're you know they're they're you know badass, they're just everything I would love to meet. So yeah. I also deeply love the hangar scene because I love the part where the door opens and she's like, yeah, we're going to take the long way around. See you later. You can have this one, guys. And now we're going to break a window and go, oh, wait, I did not know until, yes. Did you guys, did you guys know that Ray Park is one of the Naboo guards? I didn't know that until right now when I saw the, watched the replay of the yeah, he's, panel. He's yeah. next to Padme when they do the thing going. He's the last one before they go. Yeah. yeah. They, they froze it on the 20th anniversary. I was like, I can't believe there's something about the Phantom Menace. And <laughs> I did not know until this oh, very moment. I have explained to a good number of people that Richard Armitage is in the Phantom Menace. <laughs> Do you want to explain all that? Richard Armitage is in the yes. Phantom Menace. Okay, never mind. Yes. <laughs> Richard Armitage plays a palace guard. Oh my god, I did not know that. In the Phantom Menace. During the scene where she's like, no, I'm Queen Amidala, if you look at a really good still, it's like Padme is standing in front of Sabe, and between their heads oh, is okay. the 1997 version of Richard Very Armitage. Very young Richard Armitage, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're all learning today, it's great. Uh, so we're in what I would like to call the prequel renaissance right now. Uh, we have the Age of Republic comic just wrapped up. We have Queen Shadow came out in February. Master and Apprentice came out recently. And I think it's not... No one here is fooling themselves. Attitudes about the prequels have been less than positive at times. Um, and that's putting it mildly. But I feel like in the last couple of years, we've seen a bit of a change. And love of the prequels is more... I don't necessarily want to... It's both accepted and people are more willing to talk about it. So 
how do you like just what is your take on how those attitudes have changed and do you think it has anything to do with what i call the prequel trilogy generation which is us and then what i've started calling the clone wars generation which is probably about uh late 90s onward who have grown up and only known the world with the prequels and who have had the clone wars how do you think them growing up has affected that um, I think it's huge, and I think it's a lot of it is the the Clone Wars generation, like the kids who got into it because of Lego, um, and sort of took like my my nephew when he was four, he like received this do- download where like all of a sudden he knew like everything about Star Wars. <laughs> it was weird, um, and like he and like when he was three, and I got the Rogue One poster, and like he couldn't read his own name, but he recognized what Star Wars looked like when it was like written on a poster. It was really funny and kind of disturbing, um, but. I think it's I think it's a lot of that, and I think for the the prequel stuff I've noticed in particular, it's now like we're old enough that we don't take crap about it anymore. And after like 20 years of coming across these like random snide remarks about the prequels in totally unrelated like journalistic pieces about other movies and other books, you'll like you'll be reading a review of something and it'll be like, and it didn't even pull a Star Wars prequel, and you're like. Really? We're talking about something totally different. Why did you have to throw that in there? And um, I think even that's starting to change because it's like stopped being funny to be a jerk about it for some reason, which I like. So this actually came up with a friend of mine after the Celebration Chicago panel with the Phantom Menace because he and I grew up very close to each other and like every day we'd be out on his driveway with all of our lightsabers recreating the Duel of the Fates, that whole thing. And I can... Probably still do it, but um. Really? Oh, okay. oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Maybe later. So it was fun listening to Ray Park talk about all that because when he's like, and then we did this, I'm like, oh, we did that too. <laughs> um, but growing up as a kid, being so into this, we were not bullied, but we weren't, you know, given the best respect. Uh, we were made fun of a lot, and I wore Star Wars shirts every single day to school. I had my hair up like Qui-Gon for a good year and a half. Um, only wore green because, well, that's the color of his lightsaber. So we got a lot of heckling. But my buddy and I, we wore our emotions on our sleeve. If someone's like, oh, I don't like the prequels, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> and then you roll out. And that sassiness has followed through to the older age, and now when we have people coming in going, Prequels weren't that bad. They had, like, yeah, you need to rewatch them and then rethink all of this. And I think what you said is true is that we've gotten better with dealing with, like, I don't care. And also, I don't, I'm not going to deal with your, your nonsense. But then also people kind of looking back on them going, well, this wasn't the Star Wars I thought I was going to get, but it has a lot of really great Star Wars content. And they're really great movies, just as movies, but also as Star Wars movies. And I think as people have gotten older, they've gotten less sassy about it. Yeah. Actually, John, there's a slightly different question that basically I think Emily set up. Yeah. Your attitudes on the prequels have changed over the years. Completely. No, I'm, I'm one of those guys who, when I first saw Phantom Menace, like, oh, why do you, after the glow wore off, that, oh my god, I finally, we finally got a Star Wars movie. It was, wait a minute, but that and that, and then I had a whole bunch of criticisms, criticisms about the movie that a whole bunch of other people have as well. Over time, you know, those criticisms, criticisms basically stayed mainly until the Clone Wars cartoon came out. And watching that, seeing all the backstories, seeing all the, like all of these people who were now characters in this cartoon, that you were background characters, you know, during during the prequels, it was one of those things where you got to you really got to know them. And I still have those a lot of my criticisms are still there, but 
I, I do totally get, and particularly after having gone to celebration, seeing so many people who, for their generation, the prequels are it. That's their Star Wars. Me, my, my Star Wars is the original trilogy. That's, that's, my, that's my jam. You know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, this, uh, what's his name? The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I, oh, I forgot the, oh, yeah, the movie. That's still my favorite one. I'm, you know, we were living in Panama when those movies came out, so you know it was hot, and so I love the idea of a, of a nice planet. You know? <laughs> so, but I'm, so that's what I grew up with, and so my I can so I see the the, the you know the shine in the other people's eyes of the of the prequel generation who are like they have exactly the same passion that I do. It's just a, it's a different kind of movie because that's what they grew up with. So I can't. There's no way I can deny that that is a huge part of. Of 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 the certain sector of the fandom, and it's also Star Wars. So either way, there's still parts of those movies that are movies that I absolutely love. I love you know the, the Duel of Fates. I love you know the the second the, the the second half, the last act of of Attack of the Clones. You know the the entirety of of Revenge of the Sith is just amazing. But but I still had though you know, despite my criticism, they're still great, and it's still Star Wars. So you know hey. I think my favorite thing about it is that as we get more and more into Star Wars, and this works for characters as well, and hopefully, like, you don't have to, like, as a female fan, you don't have to love all of them. You get to pick them now. There's enough that you can choose. <laughs> and, like, that that's kind of fantastic, and I hope that we get more characters so that fewer people, like, I'm, I'm almost in a way kind of not worried, but, like, deeply concerned about the um, uh, Naomi Naomi no, the girl f- or the woman from Jenna. Jenna, for the, the, Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, the one from Rise Jenna. of Skywalker. Jenna. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to come up with the actress's name. Oh. Um, and because yes. it's like, if if she lives, she will be the second black woman with lines and a name to survive a movie. And um, that's a lot of expectation to put on a character, um, because there's, there's like a whole demographic of people who are going to like like her a lot. I hope, and I hope that that we keep moving forward to more. Wait, who is the first? And oh, and the There we go. <laughs> I got it. I got it. After this question. <laughs> Oh, my microphone's not on. Okay, but well, you got the vibe. Okay, uh, right there. Um, sorry, you've asked my a variation on my favorite question ever. Um, so the thing is, with the dialogue in Attack of the Clones, it's some of my favorite dialogue in Star Wars because it is the most human they ever sound. It's like if you take... It's not even the fact that he hates sand, which is true. It's that if you... Because everything that Anakin says about sand is completely true. If you've ever spent any time in the desert, he is not incorrect about sand. And I love it for two reasons. One, um, if you have this kid who's been like raised in a monastic order where like they talk about like the force, but they don't really talk about their feelings that much, um, and all of a sudden he's trying to hit on a girl, like that is really the, the worst thing he could possibly say, and therefore like perfect. And 
And Padme does the same thing because she's this like professional politician, but she's not used to like talking to boys on a regular level. So like she literally, you can see it on her face when she has that like, oh no, he's hot moment at the beginning of Attack of the Clones. And then she says literally the worst thing imaginable in front of both of their bosses. And it's beautiful. And the other thing I really like about the sand scene is that it is the greatest example of the socioeconomic difference between Padme's backstory and Anakin's backstory, and they never have any time to unpack it. Because for her, sand is a beach vacation, and for him, it's every terrible memory of his childhood. And they never have time. It's like sort of their great tragedy. They never have time to unpack it. So honestly, I think they could have used more dialogue in the movies. Um, and I haven't read the article you, you mentioned, but I, I really love, as crazy as it is, the lines that they say to each other because they're trying so hard to connect in those movies and just failing on like literally every level imaginable. And it's like it's so sad, but it's also really, really human. And honestly, I think it has a lot to do with, specifically to your question, what E.K. was saying before, is that the gener- these generations, we've grown up. And we're not afraid to use our voices and say how much we love the prequels. I can think of at least three podcasts right now that are run by women who half their brand is prequels are awesome and I love Padme. And I'm going to talk about it and I don't care if you don't like it. Um, And so I I think that has a lot more to do with it than necessarily one article. Although I do think the idea, because like when they came out, I remember people talking, like complaining about the effects, um, which I think I have like a, I think I have like a visual thing where I can't see the problem with visual effects because they literally never bother me. Um, So I'm perhaps not the best judge, but also I think most of the time people just don't like... They've aged remarkably well. So at the time, they were trying to invent a bunch of stuff. They were great and like, liking. Right? They were trying to invent stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, and like it, it might look a little weird, but they were trying to invent things. And that's always what happens. If you ever get to go to Lucasfilm and take the tour, I cannot so- recommend it highly enough. It is incredible, the shenanigans that they did to get shots. And it was a lot of stuff trying to be... Basically, George Lucas was like, well, I'm paying for this myself, so playtime and he like they were inventing things right left and center and so I think in a lot of ways it is a beautiful movie and I think we have come to appreciate it a lot more but I'm still gonna listen to the whole thing yeah I see I don't get how when people rag on the special effects because they were groundbreaking you don't get Gollum without Jar Jar yeah like plain and simple that was motion capture groundbreaking and I think a lot of people either one forget that and two I'm not even sure that a lot of audiences nowadays fully fully picked up on it because when I was watching the panel and they were because they spent the first half of the panel at Celebration talking about oh yeah there were a couple things that I was like, like man that was a hard effect right yeah <laughs> like, that, was the that pod race that pod race should not have been filmable in 1990 or 1998 1999 when they were filming it like that's amazing and it's like matchsticks with, like, wind blowing them up and down. So it looks like the crowd is going up and down. It's bonkers. And they had mentioned that a few times in the panel that George would just come to them with, like, one of the little storyboards and, like, so you're going to do this? And they're like, uh, how? <laughs> well, like, okay. I didn't ask you how you're going to do it. I asked you to do it. <laughs> and so a lot of those guys that they were talking about on the panel, they're like, well, how are we going to bring these things to life? And so a lot of the CGI that we may look back and go, like, really? You did that in CGI? A lot of it was just like, 
How did you It was like two seconds old when they did it. Like, it was really incredible stuff. So if you think of it with that that groundbreaking mindset and rewatching it, it is incredible to see what they did. It's like watching the old 1960s Ben Bur- Burton movies with the the sounds and the the stop anim stop animation yeah. uh, skeletons and stuff like that. Like that looks chintzy and weird to us today. But if you watch it in that time with that context, that was some really cool stuff. There's wow. also also the novelizations themselves. It, I also had a problem with, you know, with some of the dialogue. But if you read when you read the, when I read the novelizations, they go it, the authors go into a lot more detail about what their internal monologue and internal feelings are. So you get what you, you what, whether regardless of whether you like the way how they acted or how they were directed or not, you get an idea of what how what they're thinking of beforehand. And also back to your question about silent movie, like what they did right now with the Last Jedi when they released just a music only version of the movie where you just did that no dialogue just the music I would love it if they would do that for all of them because good grief John Williams music is just beyond belief so just do that and just have the visuals right there I loved it. I would have loved to see that too I already cry enough during Revenge of the Sith I don't need just score <laughs> I don't need this. <laughs> there's always a problem alright uh, any other questions right here in the front I was nine, so no, but since then, I have built a very wonderful d- collection of the Padme dolls, and I'm very proud of it. They might have. Um, I live 35 minutes away from the closest Walmart, um, and one time my friend went to that Walmart and they had all, when we never went there because we went grocery shopping in a different town. And um, my friend went there and they had like a big sale bin of all the Phantom Menace stuff because it was like October and nobody cared anymore. And she got me Anakin's backpack, which had a CD case that was the square thing and like a pencil case was the canister. Um, And she got me an inflatable Darth Maul chair Oh, I remember that thing is so cool. It's so weird. I have I kept it in my room for ten it. years, um, inflated, just staring at me all the time. Um, and um, the Darth Maul and the Qui Gon Jinn and the Obi Wan action figures with the little like talkie chip that I never actually heard. I never used the chip because I didn't have the thing. No, I just had the I just had the chip, which I used to make them stand up um, and fight each other, obviously. Um, yes, I collected all that stuff. Um, I would have my parents go to Taco Bell, then to Pizza Hut, and Burger King, I think, had a bunch of stuff. Burger King was Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, all oh, that's what it was. I dragged all my friends with me in high school. <laughs> we were freshmen, and we're like, we're going to Burger King, we're getting kids' meals. <laughs> yeah, and like, and so I had all that stuff, like all the, if, if it had Star Wars on it, I was going to get it, and it got to be a problem. Like, I had the cereal boxes, everything, because I, I think at that moment, you're like, oh, I got all this stuff, I got it, it's never going to happen again, I got to buy everything right now. The only time I've ever got something from a restaurant, because we don't get a lot of the same promotions in Canada, was I was here for a wedding uh, last April, and I was like, can we go to Denny's? <laughs> Oh, wait for the so we went to Denny's and I didn't know who Enfys Nest was yet so I got a Chewbacca cup and I've literally never been more disappointed with myself in my entire life I, I never really collected any of that stuff but I do have some of the prequel stuff from the Disney Infinity game if anyone's ever played that the, the little figurines I love those mainly because I could, that's the, Star, the only Star Wars game that I can actually play I really suck at Battlefront so, <laughs> but a little game for little kids I can definitely play that I also still have my ticket from Revenge of the Sith. My brother framed it for me for Christmas a few years ago. Aww, that's a good brother. 
All right, questions. Let's go Lando. <laughs> Yes. I am a literal yes. living example of that right now. That is, yes. that's from, from, from the, pre I'm an original trilogy guy, and absolutely, yes. I, I've gotten used to it. it it's, it's it, a lot of the criticisms I used to have, I still have, but they're not as strong as they used to be. So, yeah. there you go. What if you did that? <laughs> There's half the people in here that could have been their reason. It could have been me. I think all of us are just like, okay, um, hold on. Hold on, wait. I'm just gonna say one thing real quick. Like we have five minutes, so just keep your sentences, your questions brief, so I can get as many as I can. Yes, in the back. Yeah. Sort of, and I think the movie would be a lot better if it was like the novelization and it kept in her political plot line. That's my answer, is it would have been better if we had seen more of her. Yeah. Um, speaking specifically to her death, um, which I have literally spent like 20 years rationalizing to myself, so, you know. Um, it's, it's very much shaped me as a person. But um, basically, there's so much that we don't know about childbirth, like even with our current medical technology. Um, famously, Serena Williams almost died. Beyonce almost died because doctors didn't take their pain seriously because they were black women. Like at one point, Serena Williams handed her newborn baby to her husband and was wheeled off to surgery and like none of them knew if she was ever coming back. And that was last year, the year before I've lost track of this sort of thing. But the, basically the idea that like people, women and people who give birth just die in childbirth, it happens all the time. And I will say the two like most common responses I've had from um, like non sort of fanish responses I've had from women who have read Queen's Shadow are girls who have scars and women who almost died in childbirth. And it's basically like, you know, at some point you just want to sleep and the doctor will tell you if you close your eyes, you might not wake up and you don't care because you've lost so much blood and there's no, like she just has a droid, like that would suck. And like, she's had the worst day of her life because her hair, like her whole government has fallen apart and her husband has tried to kill her. And like, now she's giving birth and her hormones are insane. And it's just like, she just wanted a nap at the worst possible time. <laughs> and unfortunately, that still happens to people. And so I think, and again, this is me rationalizing it. I don't mind it quite as much as I used to because it, it is a real problem that people, that women and, and people who give birth still sort of suffer with today. So I thought that was a chump move for her, especially the buildup that we got for her for episode one and two and for her to kind of go out like a punk like that. Um, but this was coming from a child. I wasn't, I didn't understand what all that meant. Now that I have a, a sister that has given birth to two kids and watching her go through pregnancy and as you said, she just, 
had her, her, the love of her life is turning into the worst man in the galaxy. She doesn't know that, but she, she's dealing with all these emotions. Like, her husband's running off and being a madman. The world's going to crap. And then she's pregnant. That puts a lot of stress on a woman's body. And then, like, all the in medical things, and your bedside doctor is a droid. And it's not R2. It's a droid. <laughs> so you put all these things into perspective, and I think the doctor or the droid just said she died of a broken heart because that's all he could equate it to. Yeah. He didn't have the context of what she just went through. So she died because she went through a lot of crap right <laughs> up until that point, and that is not good for a pregnant woman. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have time for one more question. I would like to end this on a positive, happier note. So if anyone has a happy question. <laughs> Captain America. Ca Captain Marvels. So um, with Claudia Gray's I think it helps. I don't know how much it influences. I think the eerie prescience also helps. Um, and I think, too, it's just what we keep coming back to. People are more open to the idea of a different kind of Star Wars. Like, a lot of people will very seriously say things like, oh, that E.K. Johnston, she didn't write a Star Wars book. It was all politics and dresses. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but it says Star Wars on the front, and Lucasfilm put that there, so I'm going to go with it. Um, <laughs> And I think it's just like people are just more accepting, which is fantastic because like there's more so you can choose between the different stuff. And I absolutely loved Bloodline for that reason. And I remember my brother being like, there were no lightsabers in that book. I don't usually like the ones that don't have lightsabers. And I was like, maybe don't read Queen's Shadow. <laughs> I drew a lightsaber in the front of his book. So I'm like, this is the only version of Queen's Shadow with a lightsaber in it. Really quick, speaking as a guy who used to contribute um, every once in a while to a podcast called Bellway Bantas, which was a Star Wars and politics podcast, one of their episodes that I was on, but they did, was the powerful pod politics of Padme. So I would, you know, encourage you all. It's still up. They're, they're on hiatus now, but the, the recordings are still online on all the podcasters. So What's I definitely... A powerful podcast, a powerful podcast, politics of Padme, the Beltway Banthas. And we are out of time. Yeah. So quick, where, if people want to find you online, where can they find you? I am Chaos Bria, basically everywhere on social media. I am EK underscore Johnston, pretty much everywhere, except Tumblr, which doesn't let you have underscores. I am Jace underscore Muriel, but if you just put in Lady Rex, I am there. Juan John Jedi, J-U-A-N-J-O-H-N-J-E-D-I on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Fun thing though, I have books, so I'm going to draw two. Real quick, I'm going to read the last.